Once again, congregation, if it be possible, if you're able to, please keep your Bibles open to Habakkuk 3, verses 17 to 19, as we look at these wonderful words of encouragement this, this afternoon. Congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, uh, one of the problems with looking at passages like this in the Old Testament is, is that it seems and feels so far away from us. Um, this is something that happened in ancient history, we would say. But I, I think a good way uh, for us to really uh, relate and to really uh, feel as if we are part of, what, of the situation that's going on here is, uh, oh, on the one hand, if we remember that uh, all that is written in the Bible is written for us, there is nothing new under the sun, and the troubles that uh, ancient Israel, or, or rightly Judah, saw uh, when this, uh, in the time of the penning of this, are troubles that we see in our lives today. And so, um, perhaps it's helpful. I like to suggest that, uh, that we imagine, and everybody has, uh, would have different scenarios in their minds, but uh, imagine for a moment the most devastating thing that can happen in your life. Uh, the, 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 the thing that, the, the, the most tremendous loss that you can imagine happening to you. Uh, your life, all that you have built up, all that you have rested upon and trusted in has crumbled before you. And, and you'll understand something of the situation in which the prophet Habakkuk finds himself uh, as he pens these words. Our passage this afternoon, you see, describes something of what true faith looks like. And true faith is a trusting in God, not only when things are good, but when, when things are bad, even horribly, horribly bad. And the prophet Habakkuk, by the working of the Holy Spirit of Christ in him, he displays that kind of faith. And we say that because we understand that, that this kind of faith can only be uh, possible when one is endowed with the Holy Spirit of Christ. Only as the Holy Spirit comes to live in our hearts, enabling us to believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and, that, and to believe that the, the Almighty God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Creator of all heaven and earth, is now our Father, can we exhibit the kind of assurance that Habakkuk expresses in these verses. Now, of course, we know that uh, that's not to say that faith makes life easy. Anyone here who has experienced any kind of difficulty and disappointment will say amen to that. We've all had our share, and if we haven't at this point, we will, because we walk through this veil of tears, life which is a constant death. We know that life brings with it things that upset us, it brings pain, it brings confusion into our lives in our daily living. The difference is that for the children of God, for God's covenant children, there is an undergirding hope that carries us through the most devastating times. By faith, we cling to God, even through our tears and the fears and the uncertainties. No matter what happens, true faith says, I will trust in my God. 
And so our theme this afternoon as we look at Habakkuk 3, verses 17 to 19, is simply this, we the blessed determine to trust in Him. We the blessed of God determine to trust in Him. We'll see in the first place that we hold on to our trust through intense trials, and in the second place with immense jubilation. But as we, the children of God, determine to confess or to, to hold on to our trust in Him, we see that we do so in the first place through intense trials. And the, the prophet Habakkuk, again, indwelt by the Holy Spirit of Christ, exhibits that kind of trust as he is given horrendous knowledge of the future of the nation of Judah. Now, we say Judah's future based on chapter 1, verse 6, where the Lord tells him that he was about to raise up the Chaldeans or the Babylonians against his own people. And from this, we're able to get the general sense of when this prophecy was spoken and that this was something that was going to take place in the future. Now, the Chaldeans or the Babylonians were inhabitants of the district of South Babylonia, but the Chaldeans came to later control the whole area, the whole territory. And so quite often in the Bible, you'll hear either the Chaldeans or the Babylonians spoken of. They refer to the same people. And in 2 Kings 24, we read of, and the boys and girls will will be familiar with this name, King Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonians or king of the Chaldeans. And he brought his army up against Judah. And Judah at that time, at the time of King Nebuchadnezzar, was ruled by a king named Jehoiakim. And the inspired author mentions that the Lord sent them against Judah because of the sins of a former king, King Manasseh. And it was said of Manasseh that he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. And the Babylonians would come and they would take the king prisoner and they would plunder all the treasures from the temple and even the king's house. And they would carry all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, except the poorest of the land, into captivity in Babylon. And the prophet Habakkuk is given to see all of this before it even happens. And his prophecy is actually called literally in chapter 1, verse 1, a burden. It says in our translation, an oracle, but it's literally a burden. And we can understand why. He was given something heavy. He was given something of great sadness, a tremendously fierce and absolutely merciless people were going to come against God's people. And so that was hard for him to bear. In fact, so hard that he even, in chapter 1, verse 13, he asks of God, Are you not of such pure eyes that you cannot look upon evil? How is it possible that you can allow this to happen, that you can allow this evil nation to commit such wickedness, such atrocities against your beloved people? And God answers him with those wonderful words, that wonderful declaration upon which the Protestant faith and the Protestant Reformation was, was built upon. Chapter 2, verse 4, God says to Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. What does he mean by that? In other words, the Chaldeans would come and they would wreak their damage, but they are here today, gone tomorrow. 
Whereas the righteous, the people of God, the covenant people of God, those who trust in God will live and live on. God even goes on to describe the perverseness and the idolatry of the Chaldeans, which probably would have gone without saying because anybody who knew of the Chaldeans or Babylonians in that time would have known how perverse and wicked they were. But God says, He describes some of their, their wickedness and He talks about how He was going to use them as His instruments to bring judgment upon sinful Judah. But after this was done, these would also be brought to justice. In the meantime, the people of Judah would be subjected to the most heinous of indignities and violence. The prophet Habakkuk even says in verse 16, I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. And so what Habakkuk was given to see overwhelmed him at that point. He trembled with fear. He says his lips quivered. His entire being was weighted down with sorrow and grief. And yet, God enables him to have faith, to hold on to his trust in their covenant God. And we hear his determination to trust in verse 17. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. And, and just in the word though, you hear that determination. He uses that word, uh, we might say it this way, in spite of all these horrible things that are going to happen, I will hold on to my trust in my God. Utter devastation was about to come to Judah. Their food supply would be cut off. The fig trees which brought them pleasure from their fruit would not blossom. The grapevines which gave them raisins for food and wine to gladden the heart would produce no fruit. There would be no olives or grain to harvest, no cattle to provide a livelihood for them. And yet he would hold on to his trust. And by the way, to hear these things and to speak these things had to be particularly disturbing because, remember, the promised land, the land of Canaan, into which God had brought His people was, according to the language of Deuteronomy 8, verse 8, Deut uh, the promised land was actually described as a land of vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey. And yet now they were hearing that a time was coming when the people would reap nothing from the land. There would be no grain in the fields. There would be no sheep in the pens. There would be no cattle in the stalls. How was this possible if they were even now dwelling in the land of milk and honey? Well, partly, partly, this was because the Babylonians themselves would plunder the land. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah says as much in Jeremiah 5.17. Speaking of the same situation, speaking of the Babylonians, Jeremiah writes in uh, Jeremiah 5.17, they shall eat up your harvest and your food, 
They shall eat up your sons and your daughters. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees, your fortified cities in which you trust. They shall beat down with the sword. And so the Chaldeans would come upon Judah like locusts on a field, and they would eat up and destroy everything in sight. And so that's partly the reason why Judah would find themselves in this situation. But we have to see more importantly that this time of suffering was ultimately God's judgment upon His people for their wickedness. As a matter of fact, He says this to, uh, through Moses in Deuteronomy 11, verses 16 to 17. Deuteronomy 11, verses 16 to 17. God says to them through Moses, Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and He will shut up the heavens, so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. And that is exactly what happened in Judah. The people had, of course, been blessed with tremendous prosperity, but their response to their God, to their covenant God, had not been unadulterated worship. They had bowed down before the gods of the nations, and now they were about to reap what they had sown. Not the produce of the land, but they were about to reap God's anger. One thing we can learn from this as God's people today is that we are never to be too presumptuous about God's blessings, about the blessings that we enjoy in our lives. We have to remember that God doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe it to us to continue to bless us. He doesn't have to bless us. He's not obligated in any way. All that we receive from His hand are blessings of His grace. That is His undeserved favor. And what He gives is in His hand to take away. And so for us, we need to remember that every day for us as believers is to be a day of thanksgiving, a day of prayerful dependence upon the Lord our God for all that we enjoy from His hand. The other thing that we can learn from this is that being God's children does not spear us from trials and troubles. We all wish, don't we, that because we are Christians, that our lives would be problem-free. But it's not. In the providence of God, we all encounter illness and disease, heartache and longing, grief, financial troubles, the effects of aging, marital conflicts, job dissatisfaction, rebellious children, personal sins and struggles. We're not speared from these things as God's children. The question is, how will our faith stand up when we face these kinds of crises in our lives? Will our faith disintegrate? Will it crumble into nothing? Will we think at that time of God, the God whom we have professed to believe in all our lives, will we at that time think of God as, well, perhaps He's not as powerful 
as I thought He was. Perhaps God is not as loving as I thought He was. Maybe He's not as faithful as I have been led to believe. How will our faith stand up in that time? Or will we be able to look at the trials that the Lord sends into our lives as Him working all things together for our good? Will we, on that day, be able to say, like Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Can we, or will we be able to, on that day of trial, be able to look past our problems, to see that the troubles that we face in this life are not proof that God is not able to save us, but that He is saving us, that He is doing what is best to ensure that we attain the salvation that He has won for us in Christ Jesus. And brothers and sisters, if we can't, those are the times when we will be overwhelmed by the troubles of this life. And so that brings us to the most vital question for us today and every day. What is your relationship with God made of? What is it composed of? What is it comprised of? Is your faith in God merely that if I do all these things, then God will bless me with health and wealth and prosperity and strength? Is our faith merely a matter of God taking care of all my earthly needs? Or do we have the bigger picture in mind that all that we experience in this life is a moving toward the final day when the earth will be renewed and the curse will be removed and we will live in the presence of our God forever and ever? And that through Jesus Christ, the disasters, the difficulties that we face in this life, even death, does not have the final say for us. And you see, brothers and sisters, only this knowledge can carry us through our greatest fears. And only through Jesus Christ can we possess what the Apostle Paul, uh, Paul calls the peace that surpasses all understanding. But as we, the blessed children of God, confess our determination to trust in Him, we see that we do so in the second place with immense jubilation. And by jubilation, boys and girls, we mean great joy and celebration. And what's amazing here is that Habakkuk sees all that was about to come upon him, and on the one hand, it terrifies him and it grieves him, but he does not lose his faith. He goes on to confess in verses 18 to 19, yet, that is, in spite of all of these horrible things, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He, make me, he makes me tread on my high places. And there is that sense of determination again, to trust in the Lord. Habakkuk, by the Spirit of God, resolves, he commits himself to finding joy in the Lord in spite of all the suffering that was about to take place. Now, two different Hebrew words are used here. 
They're translated rejoice and joy in our ESVs. And the first word that's translated uh, rejoice describes a vigorous, enthusiastic expression of joy, the kind in which someone might jump out of their seat and clap their hands with delight. Think, for instance, of our reaction when our favorite hockey team scores a goal, right? We can't contain our excitement. We leap out of our seats and and we just yell and, and, and clap and express our joy. The second one describes the kind of joy that finds expression in singing and shouting, the kind that you would find at a, at a wedding reception when the bride and groom arrives and everybody, again, rises out of their seats and there's such great uh, uh, joy and excitement at the occasion. The point is the joy that Habakkuk determines to have is not what we would call a quiet resignation to one's fate. It, it was not saying, okay, well, it is what it is. This is what is going to happen, so I might as well just deal with it. It was, the kind of, it was a state of actual ecstatic gladness and joy in the Lord. It was not Habakkuk you know, trying to be courageous under the circumstances or trying to be a big man about it. He decides... Again, led by the Holy Spirit, we can't emphasize that enough. He decides, he determines that no matter how terrible the situation may become, he will continue to find joy in the Lord. And and by the way, notice that it is a joy in the Lord, right? That's where we find our greatest and ultimate joy. Not in the things of this life. It's not merely a matter matter of making the best out of every situation, but it's a genuinely celebrating the God in whose hands are all things. And let's be reminded here that material comforts, the blessings and the possessions that we have in this life, the, thing that, the things that we cherish so much, really at the end of the day, they mean very little. What counts, what brings everlasting An exuberant joy is really a true and living faith in God. Habakkuk says, no matter what happens, he determines to trust in the God of my salvation, he says. Now, to an Israelite, we have to remember that the word salvation had a a rich and historical meaning. And so you say the word salvation or saving to an Israelite, where would their minds go? Back to their exodus out of Egypt, right? God bringing them with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. And and so their emphasis in their minds would be on their deliverance from real physical enemies. The God of their salvation meant to them the one who had saved them from the hostile nations and given them, given them victory after victory against the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and so on. The God of salvation meant to them the one who had preserved them through plague and famine and all kinds of sickness. Salvation to the Israelite meant for the most part safety and security so that they could live their lives without fear in the promised land. And so as Habakkuk on the one hand shudders 
at the frightful images that he is given to see. On the other hand, he rejoices in the God of Israel who has faithfully shepherded them in the past and could be trusted to do so again in the future. But even so, you know, we might ask, because we are flesh and blood human beings with emotions, we might ask, how, how can a person rejoice when the worst kinds of calamities are about to fall upon them? Well, here's what we have to be very clear on. We cannot find that kind of strength in and of ourselves. The answer is simply because of and only by the sovereign mercy of God. Were it not for His upholding hand, the strongest believer would crumble under their sorrow. Isn't that what Habakkuk confesses in this passage? He says, it is the Lord God who is my strength. He confesses that the Lord God alone is the one who enables him to endure whatever he will send them in the ways of trials. Habakkuk speaks of God making his feet like the deer's feet. That might sound kind of foreign to us, of course, but it's actually a quote, first of all, from Psalm 18, verse 33, Psalm of David. A deer, of course, is a swift-footed animal. And so the image here of Habakkuk is of God giving them fresh and renewed strength. You might, this kind of reminds us of Isaiah 40, uh, where the prophet Isaiah uh, pictures those whose strength is in the Lord and finds their strength in the Lord, and, and the Lord shall renew their strength. And he says they will mount up with wings as eagles. In both cases, in all cases, it is always the Lord who strengthens us. The prophet says that it is the Lord God who would make him walk on his high places. And the word translated walk actually pictures treading, even trampling. In Old Testament figurative language, it refers to gaining and being in firm control of your enemies. And so the prophet is saying that no matter how terrible may be their enemies' aggression, the Lord would eventually grant them victory over their enemies, and He would rejoice with exceedingly great joy. But beloved of God, at this point we can say, well, you know, we're, we're really happy that Judah could get some good news of encouragement for the future in spite of all the terrible things that would happen to them, but we have to see as well, too, the bigger picture here, that this was merely a foreshadow of a much greater reason, reason for rejoicing for us as God's people. Of course, we know that when we today hear the word salvation or when we think of the word deliverance, it takes on a different tone for us as New Testament Christians. We hear those kinds of terms, and what do we think of immediately? We think of Jesus Christ. We think of His suffering and death on the cross for us. When we think of the word salvation, our minds go to the, the suffering Son of God, the spotless Lamb of God, His death, 
bearing our sins and carrying our sorrows, and His resurrection conquering sin and death for us. When we hear salvation today, we think of the convicting and converting work of the Holy Spirit, creating faith in our hearts so that we believe in Jesus. When we think of God, our strength, our minds go to the inward presence of His Holy Spirit in our hearts, renewing us and preserving us so that we may take hold of our heavenly prize. When we hear today of feet being made like deer's feet, we we can think literally of those in the New Testament who were converted to Christ and say in in the book of Acts who literally leapt for joy even though they had been lame. And we think, of course, of the excitement that the gospel, the good news of salvation, brings to the hearts of those formerly without hope. It even propels some to seminary because they now want to go out and proclaim this good news so that others may leap for joy. When we think today of the final conquest of our enemies, we picture, of course, the ultimate triumph over the world, the devil, and sin, our own sinful flesh. We think of Christ's victory over sin and death. And again, all of this is only possible because of God's mercy toward us in His Son. Because of the finished, perfect work of Christ, we today may rejoice in the God of our salvation. That's why in the New Testament, Paul could call suffering Christians. In the early days where there was persecution that we can only imagine, but Paul could call the New Testament Christians in, say, Philippians 4 verse 4, to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. In verse 11 of Philippians 4, he could confess that he had learned whatever his state might be, to be content. In 2 Corinthians 6 verse 10, he could speak of being sorrowful yet always rejoicing, having nothing yet possessing everything. Peter can instruct the church to rejoice to the extent that you partake of the sufferings of Christ, that when His glory is revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. And so, how can we rejoice in suffering? Beloved, only as we anticipate the day when Jesus will be seen as the triumphant victor all over all His enemies. And on that day, we will all be revealed as His. And so, dear people of God, no matter what the circumstances of your life may be today, do not lose sight of your calling and your reason to rejoice. And and not merely some kind of a restrained, serene rejoicing, but rejoice with great tribulation, determined to do so. That, of course, assumes that we are growing daily in our knowledge and in our love for the God of our salvation. Because we ought not to wait until tragedy strikes for us to begin to ponder our relationship with God. We need to be drawing near to Him daily. 
I say to my catechism students and young people, I say this just to kind of shock them into reality. I say, don't wait until you're hanging upside down by your seatbelt in a ditch, thinking I can't feel my legs, before you think about your relationship with God. Seek Him today while He may be found. And be learning again and again who we are in Christ Jesus, that we in Him are children of the living God. We are forgiven of our sins. We are reconciled to Him. We are heirs of His kingdom. The Bible tells us that nothing will ever separate us from His love. We hear that He who did not spear His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also give us all things freely. We're promised that those who, whom He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. And so crops may fail. Our labors may come to nothing. Our health may deteriorate. Our sins will frustrate us but we may trust in the Lord our God. He is with us. He will never forsake us. And in the grand scheme of things, it really doesn't matter if we are successful or healthy or even safe. Because, beloved children of God, if all that we have today we lose tomorrow, if we have Christ as our Savior and God as our Father, we possess greater riches than this world could ever contain. Amen.